0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Paula R. Curtis, doctoral fellow with the terasaki center for japanese studies at ucla to discuss historians and online harassment paula will share with me her experiences of being harassed by neto oyoku far-right nationalists who seek to hassle and discredit historians with a critical approach to japan's war history as well as offer advice for researchers of controversial history who run afoul of nationalist netizens we hope you enjoy the show good morning paula thank you for joining me again on the podcast
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we've had you on here before, but I'd uh, like to just refresh any new lessons that we have. Like to know a bit more about you. So can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there?
1: Yeah, uh, I am a historian of pre-modern Japan, focusing on the medieval period, uh, particularly the history of artisans and elite patronage. Uh, And I actually came to this through the study of art and art history and kind of moved from objects to their makers. So now my focus is on metal casters and how we can discover more about their lives and experiences and relationships to elite institutions from diverse types of historical evidence.
0: All right. We really should have you on to talk about your research at some point. (laughs) (laughs) we have a slightly unusual episode today, so uh, we're not talking about your research focus, but rather your experience as an academic, so uh, having become the target of neto-yoku, or far-right ultranationalists active on social media. The topics behind this online confrontation include the forced prostitution of women in Japanese colonies during the Asia-Pacific War, known euphemistically as the comfort woman issue and an article published by Harvard Law School professor J. Mark Ramseyer claiming on the basis of game theory that these women and girls were involuntary prostitutes with contracts who were fully aware of what they were getting involved in. So how does an historian of medieval Japan find herself entangled in this situation?
1: It does seem a little unusual for a medieval historian to become a target for modern historical controversies, huh? (laughs) Uh, But the truth of the matter is is that anyone can become a target for even the most innocuous reasons. Uh, In my case, back in February of this year, 2021, uh, Jeanne Sukh a professor of law at Harvard Law School, published an article in The New Yorker entitled Seeking the True Story of the Comfort Women. And this article summarized the background of the comfort women controversy in historical, legal, and diplomatic terms, and discussed Ramsire's article and responses to it and its repercussions. So the same day this article was released, I shared it on my Twitter account with a statement, quote, this is a fabulous summary of how this event unfolded across media and academic circles, also placing the major issues in historical perspective, end quote. And so that doesn't seem like it's too controversial of a statement, but almost immediately my tweet was inundated with responses from Japanese right wingers in English and Japanese, ranging from statements like uh, Korean testimonies are all lies and linking to conspiracy theory blogs that claim the quote-unquote true history to you know statements and that i discriminate against japanese people or that i'm just a loser you know which seemed pretty at the time like a pretty intense response to an arguably neutral statement that the article provides a nice overview of the issues
0: yeah i see and it just seems strange that you should be getting all this attention. I mean, it's not your area of research as we've covered, although I should state that anyone who has done Japanese studies or Japanese history will have come across the historicity of these issues. So who are the Netouyo? What are their motives? What forums do they populate? Are they organized to any degree? And what do they tend to have in common?
1: Well, the Japanese term netouyo is short for nettouyoku or uh, we might translate that as internet right-wingers. And it's somewhat hard to pin them down as they aren't really a cohesive community in the sense that we would like to think of them. They're more like a loosely connected network of individuals or groups who hold similar beliefs and engage in what they consider to be online activism and what many others would consider to be online harassment. Uh, as with many extremist communities uh, online around the globe, they can be found on all kinds of social media and web forums. In Japan, this might be Nichanoru or Gotanaru uh, forums, but they're also very active on Facebook and Twitter. And Twitter especially, where rapid discoverability and mobilization are quite easily accomplished, we really see them thrive. And Neto are not monolith, and most of them actually consider the label of Neto to be discriminatory. So they are quick to deny that they are these internet right-wingers and actually try to claim that their stances are, in fact, quite liberal. And yet the content they promote is highly xenophobic, often very racist. They typically identify as anti-Chinese, anti-Korean, anti-communist, and... You'll find their profiles are full of things like the imperial wartime flag, which many people consider to be a hateful symbol of imperialist and colonialist history, or just exuberant declarations that they love Japan and they are thankful they were born Japanese and that they... (laughs) need to protect Japan. So we see kind of similar rhetoric that we find in other countries and other places, whether it's what it means to be an American or protect America or or this or that, we see it in all different types of extremist communities around the world. Mm -hmm.
0: So, in a recent commentary you wrote for Critical Asian Studies, you highlight how amongst Netoyo Twitter accounts you have found images of Donald Trump and references to the QAnon conspiracy theory which originated in America. Furthermore, the championing of Harvard's professor J. Mark Ramseyer for his ahistorical article on Comfort Women as Willing Employees has dominated Netoyo discourse over the past few months. Is there a transnational element to this nationalism?
1: there have always been shared characteristics among those who engage in these kinds of attempts to promote one's own worldview and delegitimize narratives that don't support their own personal or political agendas. That is global and something that isn't confined to the modern world even. I think that what we're seeing now is how internet and social media in particular have been a force for escalating and empowering extremist communities such that they can also feed off of and, and learn from one another. Uh, even among our netoio harassers, we've seen that there are those from the Anglophone world who share their beliefs and in facilitating our online harassment have even you know, taught them new terms and phrases. Uh, most recently, things like cancel culture, you know, which they had never used to describe what's going on uh, in the last eight months and only in the past couple of weeks have begun to see it thanks to articles that have been released uh, about us. And this has now become part of their claims, you know, to being, quote unquote, victimized by scholars when those scholars push back against denialist stances or the manipulation of the historical record. Mm.
0: And is that just out of curiosity, have they just taken that as cancer culture or something like that? Yes. Or, okay. <laughs> Lovely. Great. Um, nice to see cultures are being shared around the world today. Uh, so uh, what is the rhetoric or logic, if we can call it that, employed by nito activists? Do you believe there is any room for rational debates? And if not, what is the appropriate way for researchers to respond to such provocative public criticism of their work?
1: Oh, I, I wish I could list all of the logical fallacies that we've encountered because they they really run the full gamut. Uh, in, term of Rams- in terms of Ramsire's article in The Comfort Women, there is a deflection from the core issues that scholars have identified in their published refutations arguing for the article's retraction, namely the article by Amy Stanley, Sayaka Chitani, Chelsea Sandy Scheider, David Ambaras, and Hannah Shepard. And at the core of this issue is academic integrity. A thorough and lengthy fact-checked uh, fact check of Ramsayer's article showed that he misused sources, had inaccurate or missing citations, and you know even cited right-wing blogs uh, as evidence. You know anonymous sources, and yet the Netanyahu position is that this is about academic freedom. And, and certainly you know, any scholar is welcome to have a contrary or unpopular opinion. This is part of academic discourse, but uh, it must be rooted in historical fact and academic integrity. And if journals publish work that does not uphold standards of academic integrity, then it does damage to academia as a whole. Academic integrity is the issue. But the UYO, in insisting that it is about academic freedom, get to paint their icons as victims whose voices aren't being allowed. And they also push hyperbolic stances that distract from this. You know, uh, you're talking about comfort women, but why aren't you talking about war atrocities of US soldiers? This must be because you hate Japan. You're anti-Japanese. You're a scholar using Japanese tax dollars to promote anti-Japanese sentiment overseas. You're putting racist propaganda in your class lectures. You're being paid by the Korean government to promote propaganda. You know, you can see how from simply diverting attention away from the original issue, these communities can rapidly spin out these wild, baseless statements that are intended to whip followers into a frenzy, not offer real discussion. So it's impossible to have a rational debate with someone who won't even agree on the premise that the facts matter. And they have no interest in actually reading and responding to any properly sourced refutation. This is really instead about the attention economy.
0: I see. So you can't talk to them. You can't offer them alternative sources to broaden their awareness of the facts. So why don't you just block them out? So why do some people say you should continue to debate with them and others say you shouldn't talk to them at all?
1: Ah, that's a difficult question. And I think that there are kind of two camps for this, right? One is, uh, why don't you debate them, as you said? And one is, why don't you just turn it off? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the issue is that one, if you debate them, then you end up in a catch 22, because if you debate these people who are not coming to, uh, this conversation with facts, with ethical, uh, source information, ethically sourced information, then you're lending credence to the premise that what they have said already is true, which is not the case. And if you say, well, I'm not going to debate you on this, then you get accused of being a coward and for, of being wrong. And it, it reinforces what it is that they are saying about you, no matter how inaccurate it is so the why don't you just debate them It's not particularly helpful and on the other hand just ignoring them doesn't help either because then you're not addressing the core problem and so just turning it off especially when so much of our lives are integrated into the internet and being online and being public facing now that also is just not an option
0: Mm, yeah i see and they defend their actions, as as you said, as a matter of academic freedom, which sounds very familiar to debates around freedom of speech. Is there like a connection going on there?
1: Well, I think that by framing it as academic freedom, this is, as I said, a a diversion from the actual issue, which is integrity. Mm -hmm. Uh, By saying this is about academic freedom, my freedom of speech is being suppressed, then you paint yourself as a victim. And you're trying to invalidate anything else that the opposition to you says. And and this is really, you know, we see this in all kinds of uh, political and and academic, and there's lots of overlap there, uh, circumstances uh, and contexts right now.
0: I see. So, broadening the scope of this discussion, higher education institutions have been targeted by far-right online movements claiming they are pushing a leftist agenda, particularly around such issues as critical race theory in the USA. This flies in the face of the basic principles of academia, where all possible biases must be demonstrably considered, including our own, in order to arrive at some kind of generally recognised truth. How do beliefs in fake news and alternative facts undermine this aspect of academia? And what can be done to counter this narrative?
1: Oh, I wish I had a magic solution to this, because you can certainly see how this rhetoric is being used widely. If you follow some of these politicians who are railing against critical race theory, and in some cases even running on platforms, that say they'll take CRT out of schools, you find that it's not actually being taught in the schools they claim they're going to be removing it from, like K-12 to education, you know? And I think they would be hard-pressed to define critical race theory if you asked them directly. But do we need to be having conversations and education about race and intersectional issues of, of racism in America? Absolutely. And from an early age, because it affects people from an early age. But right now, you know, academics are struggling in an uphill battle where politicians and donors are are meddling in the administration of academic institutions and creating images of, quote-unquote, lefty academics as the enemy. When what most educators are really trying to do is to teach diverse perspectives on history, to promote critical thinking skills, and give students the tools to effectively analyze what they read and experience themselves. So, we are being made into an imagined enemy because an enemy is what people need to become conquerors. And once far-right talking heads and communities have painted academics as pushers of propaganda who can't be trusted, they've set themselves up as the only source of truth hoping that their followers will intrinsically trust them without engaging in critical evaluation of their own. And this is part of the reason that one of the most important things we can do is to not ignore that this is happening on and offline and to be in solidarity with one another.
0: So I'm just wondering if if this targeting of academic institutions and this brandishing of them as leftist organizations by right-wing media, do you think that's a result of these institutions having been trying to make themselves more accessible and diverse and less bastions of white privileges as they have been in the past?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that the more diverse and accessible uh, our institutions become, as well as the more public facing they become, especially with topics that, People might prefer to, you know, have their debates about behind closed doors or only on the pages of academic journals. You know, the fact that these issues are relevant and that there are so many people who want to have these conversations about them and who do excellent research on them, you know, that becomes more public. And it's not as if these conversations... About difficult topics were not happening previously in the academy. I mean, some of them were not because they weren't necessarily of interest to a primarily, you know, elite, wealthy, uh, white population, which is how you know most of these institutions began. Um, But, you know, now having to critically re-examine one's own approaches, even the fundamental origins of our fields, is uncomfortable for people and it challenges their preconceived notions uh, about the world as well as academia as a whole, as an institution. And I think that's very intimidating to people. And it's because it isn't comfortable, it is something that ends up having this kind of strong reaction to it because There's a a kind of personalization, I think, in many ways, where if something is called out as being intrinsically racist, as being intrinsically problematic, as being intrinsically discriminatory, people come in with the belief that it's a reflection of their personal selves, even Mm -hmm. though it's really about systems and it's really about institutions, which is not to say there are not people personally culpable in some of these situations. But when one personalizes the system as a whole and, and considers any attack against a system, an attack on themselves, then it becomes a dangerously personal fight for them to not enable or support or promote any change. And and that's very problematic. Uh, And so having this kind of new approach of being more accessible, being more public facing, and also trying to get academics out of the quote unquote ivory tower, you know, inevitably you're going to run into these issues. And I think that institutions haven't quite caught up yet in in what this means and how to facilitate the the changes that have been uh coming for all of us
0: yeah definitely so clearly it is important for historians to hold the same academic standards for controversial historical events as with any other and researchers pursuing this are doing just work What advice do you have for budding historians looking to explore politically sensitive historical issues who might be targeted by ahistorical political activists online?
1: Well, first and foremost, it's important to learn how to protect yourself, whatever that might mean. Uh, It might mean making sure that all of your social media accounts have two-factor authentication enabled and are private rather than public. It might mean setting limits for yourself on how and where you engage with research contents or online communities. It might mean being hyper-aware of what information you share about your everyday life, whether it's a neighborhood you like or where your favorite coffee shop is. But it's important to educate yourself also on the way that bad faith actors and extremist communities operate on specific platforms and what you can do to manage and minimize your experience of any potential negative consequences and interactions. Uh, I would also say that if you know that it's a very real possibility that you might have these encounters, it's also critical to make your department and administration aware that this may happen or is happening. In my experience, uh, as I said, institutions have not fully caught up to what mobilized attacks on their researchers look like or can mean. And so they're often slow to react or have no idea how to respond or feel that it's safer for, say, their brand not to respond. One of the things I did to demonstrate to fellow academics and friends just how serious this can be is to crunch the data from one of uh, our main harassers. And this person has tweeted at or about six of us, myself and the writers of The Refutation, you know, over, at this point, a thousand times in just over eight months. And wow. many people who are not engaged online don't understand that, as I said, that it isn't really something you can turn off and this harassment machine will continue whether or not you choose to engage. So you either get a voice in what's happening to you or you don't. And whether we like it or not, using online media is fully integrated into the way that we live our lives and we do our work now. So if if the question is, why don't you just turn off Twitter? I mean, is this something you would have said a decade ago about a phone, right? Can you imagine Mm -hmm. your phone buzzing with hate-filled messages from strangers three to four times a day for almost a year? Uh, Or having high-level administrators at your institution receive mail claiming that you are a raging racist. Uh, This happened to me recently. You know, they may have no idea what this looks like or how it affects us. Uh, And in many ways, it's unfortunately those who are harassed who bear the burden of educating uh, our employers by example and our organizations by example. And it might only happen after something has gone wrong. So it's crucial to be proactive and educated and transparent where we can be.
0: I see. And just out of curiosity, um, is there, because you've been talking about Twitter a lot as uh, one of the preferred forums for your attacks, as you call them, what is Twitter doing about this? If someone is deliberately harassing someone for the sake of harassing them, does blocking and reporting them actually achieve anything, or are they getting around this somehow?
1: There is a combination of different factors that affect whether or not something is done. Uh, English language Twitter is much better monitored than Japanese Twitter, which to my knowledge from having had conversations with others uh, is mostly managed by AI essentially. And so there are certain keywords or key phrases that are used if if it's noted automatically that it's happened Uh, or it happened to be used, then it will respond. Um, But it's much more difficult to uh, get people blocked or uh, suspended or get their accounts removed uh, in Japanese Twitter land, basically. Uh, Which is not to say that you should try, because it takes sustained action to have any difference. And even if it's just something like a person getting suspended until they delete a terrible tweet, Um, If that happens enough times, that is sort of on the record. And after getting pinged X number of times, that person may get their account removed. Um, But it is much easier to go through reporting methods and reporting systems uh, in English language environments. And so this is one of the challenges that we have and that we saw even during things like the election cycle with Facebook, right, that the companies have not necessarily caught up to the types of systems they need to have in place for the ways this harassment happens.
0: Yeah, I see. Yeah, there's a lot of change. I I feel like it's, uh, with big companies, it takes so much longer for them to adequately react to how users end up abusing their own systems that, uh, (laughs) yeah, it can be quite frustrating, I think, if you're on the receiving end of this kind of harassment. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions today, Paula. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on?
1: Sure, Uh, on a more positive note. Uh, As much as I I would enjoy rambling for some time about the book I'm working on, on metal casters in medieval Japan, uh, probably more exciting for other listeners is I'm working on a variety of collaborations on a new digital platform project sponsored by the N.I. Initiative for Globalizing Japanese Humanities uh, in partnership with UCLA and Wasaga and uh, this will be working to develop open access resources for research and pedagogy in Japanese studies. So right now we're producing content and we're working on developing the website, so it might be a little while before there's something concrete to share, but it is called Japan Past and Present and it is an exciting new project that we hope will be able to connect researchers and support scholarship on Japan around the globe. So stay tuned.
0: Great, we'll look forward to that. Thanks for coming again, Paul. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: You can find the link to Paula's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be taking a brief break as the Sainsbury Institute hosts its fifth annual Robert Sainsbury Lecture with Rebecca Salter, President of the Royal Academy of the Arts, to discuss the presence of absence in the Sainsbury Centre's permanent collection. You can watch this on the Sainsbury Institute's YouTube channel from next Monday. We hope you'll join us then.